Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 326. Today's big Bible questions, how do we run with the endurance? What is a root of bitterness, and why is it dangerous? Well, happy Tuesday, friends. Today, we're going to try and tackle three questions, so there's no time for a silly introduction or a mildly amusing anecdote. Alas, today's Bible readings continue with a cavalcade of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names like Meshelameth, Bakbakar, and Abiasaph, as we read 1 Chronicles 9 and 10, Amos 6 also, and the second part of Luke 1 and Hebrews 12, which is our focus chapter. Well, let's start with a bitter root or a root of bitterness. The book of Hebrews 12 warns us about allowing a root of bitterness to come up amongst the middle of the people of God. Specifically, chapter 12, verse 14 says, Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Well, for years, I'll be honest with you, I assumed and probably taught that the writer of Hebrews was warning against like unforgiveness, the kind of bitterness that comes when we hold grudges and, you know, that sort of thing. In context, you can see that the verse before it does actually reference pursuing peace with people, so it's kind of an easy thing to conclude, except I don't actually think that's what we're being warned about here. Instead, I'm almost certain that this passage is a reference back to Deuteronomy 29. And when you go to Deuteronomy 29, let's start with verse 16 and read through 19. It says this, Indeed, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and passed through the nations where you traveled. You saw their abhorrent images and idols made of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which were among them. Be sure that there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. When someone hears the words of this oath, he may consider himself exempt, thinking, I will have peace even though I follow my own stubborn heart. This will lead to the destruction of the well-watered land as well as the dry land. Well, I note here that we're being warned about a bitter and poisonous root in Deuteronomy. And in that context, which again, I think Hebrews is quoting exactly, this seems to refer to a person who is an idolater, one who pursues other gods. And it's this kind of behavior that is infectious and will lead to God judging the land. It would seem that the writer of Hebrews is warning us about this, and thus this warning is tied more into the command to pursue holiness in the previous verse in Hebrews 12, rather than the command to pursue peace. Now, I do want to say, obviously, bitterness and unforgiveness is to be avoided also like poison, but this passage is really more pointing us to the dangers of idolatry rather than the dangers of unforgiveness. And there are plenty of other places in the Bible that are going to point to us the danger of unforgiveness. Well, 2020 has been a hard year. I suppose that goes without saying. Uh, It's almost a cliche to say that. I don't even want to say the word unprecedented because you've probably heard it 25 times today already. Considering that the book of Hebrews appears to be written to a community of Christians who are undergoing strong persecution, 
and probably even thinking about giving up because of that persecution, I find that this letter is so incredibly appropriate in so many places to help encourage and spur us on given the difficulties of our present time. The beginning of Hebrews 12 might just be one of the most encouraging short sections of the Bible too. So let's read the whole thing and listen for how we can run hard races metaphorically with great endurance. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons, for what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they dis- disciplined us for a short time, best based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness." No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord." Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears, because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned." The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken. 
that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, how do we run the race of 2020 and you know, 2021, etc., with endurance? Well, the answer, on the surface at least, is profoundly simple. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, the Greek word there for fix or stare or look at, it's actually one of my favorite Greek words and one of those we don't really seem to have an equivalent for in English exactly. This is the only place in the Bible it's used, and the word is aphorao, and it means kind of like to look away from one thing and to look towards another thing, sort of an intense staring sort of thing at that second thing. Fix your eyes on Jesus, though. It sort of sounds like one of those religious phrases that you might see on an inspirational plaque in a southern woman's kitchen or maybe a phrase in a Christian greeting card. The question is, of course, how in the world do we do that? And I think it's a fair question. The longer I pastor, the more I want to personally move away from simply teaching religious aphorisms or, you know, short phrases with meaning that people sort of sagely nod at, but nobody really knows what they mean. When we read that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the right response is something like, well, yeah, but how do we do that? And I think the answer is actually kind of simple. We fix our eyes on Jesus daily in the Word of God, reading His teachings and other parts of the Bible that expand on His teachings, and then throughout the day, we metaphorically, or maybe even spiritually is a better way of saying it, we spiritually fix our mind's eye, our faith eyes and ears, on those teachings, thinking about how Jesus lived his life, how he suffered and died for us, what he taught, his words, how he promised eternal life to all who believe in him by faith, and how he promised to come again with his reward. We need to keep this good news in front of us day by day by day by day, mulling over the teachings of Jesus in our mind and the gospel and reminding ourselves of these again and again and again and again. Now, I may have mentioned this before, probably worth considering again. When I need great encouragement, one of the ways that I fix my eyes on Jesus personally is by thinking through the meaning and implications and present reality of Hebrews 7, 24 and 25, which says, Because Jesus remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. So I take from that that Jesus is praying for his people. I can't see him doing that with my natural eyesight, but I can see this and believe it and stand on it by faith. And that comforts me. And that, I believe, is really how we can fix our eyes on Jesus. Can we fix our eyes on Jesus and see by faith that which we can't see by actual sight? Absolutely. And Paul prays for exactly this to happen in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. This is what he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Well, friends, Paul knows that hearts don't have eyes. A kindergartner knows that hearts don't have eyes. He's speaking of spiritual sight, sight by 
faith. So friends, may the eyes of your heart, your spiritual eyes, your faith eyes be enlightened today so that you and I may know the hope of Jesus and so that you may fix those eyes by faith and not sight on him. Then you and I will have the endurance to run the race powerfully. Well, we will continue. Amos chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. The notable people in this first of the nations, those the house of Israel comes to. Cross over to Kalna and see. Go from there to great Hamath, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yous? yours? You dismiss any thought of the evil day and bring in a rain of violence. They lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches, and dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile as the first of the captives, and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. The Lord God is sworn by himself. This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. I loathe Jacob's pride and hate his citadels, so I will hand over the city and everything in it. And if there are ten men left in one house, they will die. A close relative and burner will remove his corpse from the house. He will call to someone in the inner recesses of the house, Any more with you? That person will reply, None. Then he will say, Silence, because the Lord's name must not be invoked. For the Lord commands, The large house will be smashed to pieces and the small house to rubble. Do horses gallop on the cliffs? Does anyone plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lod Debar and say, Didn't we capture Karnaim for ourselves by our own strength? But look, I am raising up a nation against you, house of Israel. This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies, and they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. Luke 1, 39-80 in those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him, he has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with her about three months. Then she returned to her home. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard from the Lord 
that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father, but his mother responded, No, we will. he will be called John. Then they said to her, None of your relatives has that name, so they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about it took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of our God's merciful compassion." The dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1 All Israel was registered in the genealogies that are written in the book of the kings of Israel, but Judah was exiled to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. The first to live in their towns on their own property again were Israelites, priests, Levites, and temple servants. These people from the descendants of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, settled in Jerusalem. Uthai, son of Amuhud, son of Omri, son of Imri, son of Bani, a descendant of Perez, son of Judah, from the Shilonites, Asiah, from the firstborn and his sons, and from the descendants of Zerah, Jeuel and their relatives, 690 in all. The Benjaminites, Salu, son of Meshulam, son of Hodaviah, son of Hasanua, Abaniah, son of Jeroham, Elah, son of Utsi, son of Mikri, Meshulam, son of Shephatiah, son of Raul, son of Ibnijah, and their relatives according to their family records, 956 in all. All these men were heads of their ancestral families. The priests, Jediah, Jehoiarib, Jachin, Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahutob, Ahitub, the chief official of God's temple, Adaiah, son of Jeroham, son of Pashur, son of Malchajai, Masai, son of Adlai, Adiel, son of Jatsura, son of Meshulam, son of Meshelamith, son of Immer, and their relatives, the heads of their ancestral families, 1,760 in all. They were capable men employed in the ministry of God's temple. The Levites, Shemaiah, son of Hashub, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabiah of the Merarites. Bakbakar, Haresh, Galal, and Madaniah, son of Micah, son of Zikri, son of Asaph. Obadiah, son of Shemaiah, son of Galel, son of Jeduthon, and Barakiah, son of Asa, son of Elkanah, who lived in the settlements of the Netophathites. The gatekeepers, Shalom, Akub, Talman, Ahiman, and their relatives, 
Shalom was their chief. He was previously stationed at the king's gate on the east side. These were the gatekeepers from the camp of the Levites. Shalom, son of Kor, son of Abiasaph, son of Korah, and his relatives from his ancestral family, the Korahites, were assigned to guard the thresholds of the tent. Their ancestors had been assigned to the Lord's camp as guardians at the entrance. In earlier times, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, had been their leader, and the Lord was with them. Zechariah, son of Meshelamiah, was the gatekeeper at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The total, total number of those chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds was 212. They were registered by genealogy in their settlements. David and the seer Samuel had appointed them to their trusted positions. So they and their sons were assigned as guards to the gates of the Lord's temple, which had been the tent temple. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, east, west, north, and south. Their relatives came from their settlements at fixed times to be with them seven days. But the four chief gatekeepers, who were Levites, were entrusted with the rooms and the treasuries of God's temple. They spent the night in the vicinity of God's temple because they had guard duty and were in charge of opening it every morning. Some of them were in charge of the utensils used in worship. They would count them when they brought them in and out and when they took them out. Others were put in charge of the furnishings and all the utensils of the sanctuary, as well as all the fine flour, wine, oil, incense, and spices. Some of the priest's sons mixed the spices. A Levite called Mattathiah, the firstborn of Shalom, the Korahite, was entrusted with baking the bread. Some of the Korahites' relatives, Kohathites' relatives, were responsible for preparing the rows of the bread of the presence every Sabbath. The singers, the heads of the Levites' family, stayed in the temple chambers and were exempt from other tasks because they were on duty day and night. These were the heads of the Levite families, chiefs according to their family records. They lived in Jerusalem. Jael fathered Gibeon and lived in Gibeon. His wife's name was Makah. Abdon was his firstborn son, then Zur, Kish, Baal, Ner, Nadab, Gidor, Ahlo, Zechariah, and Mikloth. Mikloth fathered Shimeam. These also lived opposite their relatives in Jerusalem with the other relatives. Ner fathered Kish, Kish fathered Saul, and Saul fathered Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. Jonathan's son was Merabael, and Merabael fathered Micah. Micah's sons, Pithon, Melech, Taria, and Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Jerah. Jerah fathered Alameth, Asmaveth, and Zimri. Zimri fathered Moza. Moza fathered Beniah. His son was Rephiah. His son, Elisa, and his son, Adzel. Adzel had six sons, and these were their names. Azrakim, Bocheru, Ishmael, Shiriah, Obadiah, and Hanan. These were Adzel's sons. Chapter 10, verse 1. The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them. Many were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers spotted him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and torture me. But his armor-bearer would not do it because he was terrified. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died. So, so Saul and his three sons died. His whole house died together. When all the men of Israel in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. So the Philistines came and settled in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his said sons dead on Mount Gilboa. 
They stripped Saul, cut off his head, took his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news to their idols and the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and hung his skull in the temple of Dagon. When all of Jabesh-Gilead heard of everything the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave men set out and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. They buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Saul died for his unfaithfulness to the Lord because he did not keep the Lord's word. He even consulted a medium for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Amen. And have mercy. Well, friends, may the Lord bless you. May he cause his face to shine on you. May his good news dwell in your heart. And may you fix your eyes on Jesus. Good day to you and Godspeed.